people can do amazing things. Walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. Hello, Kat. Hello, and this week we're zooming in on the subject of nanoparticles to examine how tiny objects smaller than the wavelength of light are making really large waves in the world of health and material science. Plus, the experimental allergy treatment that's been helping sufferers to stop panicking about eating peanuts and the genetically modified purple tomatoes that could be making their way to your dinner plate very soon. And our scientific teaser for this week, we would like you to tell us the cells in the human body are outnumbered 100 to 1 by what? If you have any questions or comments for us here at The Naked Scientist, you can email me, chris at thenakedscientist.com, or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk. And let's kick off with a look at the science news headlines, as we always do. Kat, what have you had your eye on this week? Now, there's been an absolutely incredible story this week. My background is in developmental biology and stem cells, and I thought this this just knocked my socks off, basically. This week in the journal Nature, researchers in the US and Japan have published a quite extraordinary and potentially groundbreaking paper showing that cells can be switched back into a stem cell-like state just by giving them a brief shock with acid. Now, This pre- is not LSD? No, no, no. No, this is acid, a pH about 5.7. Now, previously, Nobel Prize winner Shinya Yamanaka had found that if you add four specific molecules to cells, you can reprogram them. You can make them kind of go back to the stem cell state. But this is the first time that anyone's shown that a physical shock, like this acid dip, can basically switch cells backwards. So it's absolutely fascinating, and it could be really important for future therapies. But it's a bit controversial, actually, and it does almost sound too good to be true. Why do they think this works? Well, what they've actually done is they've taken white blood cells from a mouse spleen and they give them a quick dip, about 25 minutes in acid. It's about pH 5.7 and normal body pH is around 7.4. And then when they grow them in the lab, 
they find that they become like stem cells. And the big mystery is why. They really just don't know. And they do seem to be genuine stem cell-like cells. They can turn into different types of tissue found in the early embryo. You can do this with other types of cells. You can take nerve cells, skin cells, muscle, fat, bone, and you can just give them this dip in acid and reprogram them. And really interestingly, you can also take these acid-induced stem cells and you use a technique called chimeric mice, where you kind of mix these cells with embryonic stem cells and you create kind of a, a mixture mouse that you implant in a mouse's womb. And actually, they found that these stem cells can contribute to both the embryo, the baby, and the placenta. And this is really weird because regular embryonic stem cells that you can do this with, they only contribute to the embryo and not to the placenta. So there's something very, very strange going on. I was talking to a scientist from Oxford University who works on the heart, and she was saying to me she was interested in this because when people, for instance, have a heart attack, you get a bit of tissue which is deprived of oxygen and blood and therefore becomes very ischemic, in other words, low in oxygen. And this in turn makes it very acidic because the tissue produces a lot of carbon dioxide and other metabolites which put the pH right down. And she was speculating as to whether it might be that this is one repair mechanism. Perhaps the body is sensitive to acid because damaged tissue becomes acidic and it might be one way of making the body repair itself. That's a really nice explanation. I mean, at the moment, they've just got no clue because it's quite artificial. They've done it in the lab. But it's very easy to imagine it. And the headline writers have got really quite carried away with the implications of this. You know, obviously, you could make all kinds of stem cells very easily from this, from tissue. But there's a lot of questions. I mean, firstly, this is just from one lab. So we don't know if it's going to be reproducible by other teams, which is a really key thing in this kind of science. We don't know if it'll work in human cells. These were just mouse cells. And also this was done with very young cells, with kind of newborn mouse cells. So we just don't know if it would work with adult cells. So there's lots and lots of more research to be done. And also you don't know how stable these reprogrammed cells are because the big risk with a stem cell therapy is you implant stem cells into someone and they just go completely crazy and turn into a cancer. So there's a lot to be found out. And, you know, a bigger question as to why this is happening and why maybe, you know, the cells in the stomach that are in a very acid environment don't go bonkers like this. They don't reprogram themselves. But why this seems to work in the lab and is it going on in the body? Brilliant story. Thank you, Kat. And you can follow up with the reference to that story on our website, nakedscientist.com forward slash news. Also here with us this week, looking at the news, is science writer Mark Peplow. And you've been sniffing or taking the air in Beijing, Mark. Yeah, that's right. Have you ever been to Beijing, Chris? I have. I went in... 1999 and I was gobsmacked by the amount of traffic and the number of bicycles on the road but I've got a very nice picture of myself at the Emperor's Summer Palace looking across the lake to the mountains, the artificial mountains they mm. built for him in the background and you can see them very clearly. At the time of the Olympics someone posted a near identical picture on the internet and that view that I had in 1999 was completely obscured and they said that's down to pollution. It is. Beijing has a huge air pollution problem, mostly from the tiny particles that are generated from burning coal and the number of cars on the road as well. So that's a known public health problem, but there's a lot less known about the impact or even the identity of the microbes that are also drifting through that brown haze in these particular smogs that you get. So Chinese researchers have now used genome sequencing to sample the air, and they've identified about 1,300 
500 different bacteria that were floating around in a particularly soupy smog back in January last year. OK, but how does that compare with if I just took some London air or some, heaven forbid, Cambridge air on a day like today and do a similar genome analysis? Because just because they're there doesn't mean that they're either pathological or that they're there in a threshold amount that can do damage. You're absolutely right. We live in a sort of microbial soup all the time. And researchers have done sort of similar genome surveys. It's called metagenomics, genome surveys of air in, in the New York subway and in Milan, for example. But previously, we haven't really had the technical ability to drill down to identify particular species. What you tend to be able to do is to identify sort of the presence of members of a broad family of bacteria. But of course, the pathogenicity of different members of that family varies quite a lot. Now, what they've done here in Beijing is actually drill down and identify individual types of bacteria, species of bacteria. And most of them are benign. But a few of them are responsible for allergies and respiratory diseases in humans. Streptococcus pneumonia, for example, was in there. And Aspergillus fumigatus, which is a fungal allergen. Importantly, what they found was that the amount of DNA from these species actually increased two to four times on the smoggiest days. So there's this hypothesis now that on the smoggiest days, you're not only getting exposure to more particles, but potentially more exposure to pathogens and allergens. Of course, people have in the past related bad air days to bad allergy, bad respiratory and bad heart attack days. And there's a very strong connection. And previously, people have implicated nanoparticles in the air from engines and things. So do you think the bugs are possibly playing a role as well? Well, when I was writing this story this week, I spoke to one researcher in Milan, actually, who said that there's this growing sense, actually, that bacteria are playing a really important role in these adverse health effects of airborne particles. And there's this growing sense that perhaps bacteria are one of the key factors in causing health problems. So Kat, hold your breath when you get back on the underground on the way back. Absolutely. As someone with asthma, I'm always interested in these kind of stories. My husband went to Beijing and he said, you must never go there, it's terrible. (laughs) Anyway, purple tomatoes might soon be making their way onto our dinner plates because the genetically modified fruit is currently being mass-produced in Canada. Now, the creators hope the tomatoes, which contain anthocyanin compounds normally found in deeply coloured berries and beetroot, will put the health benefits of blueberries and cranberries into a more affordable crop. So here's your quick-fire science on genetically modified health foods with Dave Ansell and Ginny Smith. Genetic modification allows scientists to select genes which code for certain beneficial traits from one organism and then add them to another. It's similar to, but much faster than, the traditional practice of moving genes by crossbreeding certain plants to improve a farmer's harvest. Some people worry that GM food is not natural and therefore not safe to eat, but no studies have found this to be true. Others worry that the genes may escape into the wild populations and cause problems. Most GM crops have been designed to increase yield or make them more resistant to herbicides or disease, but some have been designed to give health benefits. One example is golden rice, which is fortified with pro-vitamin A, which the body converts into vitamin A. Over a million children a year in developing countries die because of vitamin A deficiency, with many more being left blind. Golden rice could help to prevent this, but regulations and fears about its safety have delayed its introduction. Now, scientists at the John Innes Centre in Norwich have genetically modified a purple tomato, which contains the same antioxidants present in blueberries. Mice with cancer fed these tomatoes live 30% longer than those fed on normal red tomatoes. They may also have anti-inflammatory properties. 
But UK regulations mean the tomatoes have to be grown in Canada, where regulations test the safety of the food as it will be eaten, not the process of developing it. The seedless juice can then be shipped back to the UK for trials. Because it's seedless, there's no risk of the plant escaping to the wild, so it bypasses the British regulations. The ungenetically modified Dave Ansell and Ginny Smith there. And you can get hold of all our quickfire science episodes as their own podcast from our website at thenakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. About one in 100 people in the UK has a peanut allergy and it can have a huge impact on the lives of those who are affected. But this week, researchers at Addenbrooke's Hospital in Cambridge announced a success rate of 84% using a new technique to control the allergy. Ginny Smith went to the hospital to meet some of the study participants and Dr Andy Clark, who is one of the lead researchers on the project. Well, it's a really big problem for us and the population. There are probably half a million people in the UK who have peanut allergy. And every year, despite our best efforts, deaths still occur. And the difficulty is we don't know in whom those deaths are going to occur. So children in the past who've had mild reactions have gone on to die from peanut allergy. So it's really important that this is recognised and it actually drives down the quality of life of people who have peanut allergy. So it's a really important issue to address. With peanut allergy such a big problem, Andy and his colleagues put together a trial to see if they could cure it. I spoke to 11-year-old Lena, who took part in the trial, to find out what it involved. I had to eat two milligrams of a peanut to start with, and it kept doubling every two weeks, so I had to come back to the hospital every two weeks. And now, how many peanuts can you eat? I'm allowed up to 12 and a half a day, but I don't really like them, so I have to eat five. <laughs> I'm Diana Barden, I'm Lena's mum. And what did you think when you heard about this trial? Well, I heard about it a couple of years before Lena joined. We've been under Dr Clark since Lena was two, so quite a long time, and I was quite excited about it, and I asked him about it, but Lena was a bit young to start off with, so we waited a year or two until she was old enough really to understand herself what she would need to do every day. So, What was it like having a child where you had to be so careful not to let her eat peanuts? Well, I wasn't used to this at all. I come from a family where we've never had any allergies or asthma, eczema, anything at all. So it was completely alien to me, plus the fact that I'm half American, so I was weaned on peanut butter. So so not being allowed to have peanuts in the house was, you know, I I just couldn't believe that this was happening, really. So we used something that sounds quite intuitive. We gave them a little bit of what they're allergic to to try and induce tolerance to it in the long term. We gave them a very small amount of peanut and gradually increased it, giving them doses every day, but increasing the amount every two weeks. When you say a tiny amount, are we talking one peanut or less? Oh, much less. So we gave two milligrams of peanut protein. How many milligrams of this peanut protein would you get in a a whole peanut? Sure, that's about 150 milligrams in an average peanut, but of course it varies. So we're talking a 70th of a peanut? Yes, about that. And it's such a small amount, as I say, it, it doesn't cause problems. When you say administered it, were they eating this tiny bit of peanut? Was it on the skin or...? Yeah, we measured it out into these tiny doses, which increased over time. But each time the child took it, it would be mixed into something that they could take, like a yoghurt or, or a milkshake. And also that was used to disguise the taste. So every two weeks, we increase the amount. We roughly double it. So by the end of three or four months, they're actually eating whole peanuts in large amounts. So what we found was over time, the children's tolerance increased so that they would react 
or have minor reactions to the lower doses, but as we increased the doses, they became more tolerant. So eventually, in the study, 84% of the children could eat the equivalent of five peanuts every day without having reactions. And when you say they did react a bit to these lower doses, I'm assuming that wasn't full-on anaphylaxis? No, that's right. So mild reactions were quite common. Um, Pretty much everyone had a bit of mouth itching with some of the doses. Uh, Only one of our participants had a more severe reaction, which was treated with adrenaline, and we withdrew him from the study. And why do we think this is happening? Well, we did some mechanistic work and we looked at the very top level of the immune system where uh, we expect this to be working at uh, cells called basophils. And we found that the basophils became less sensitive to peanut exposure over time. Now, what's going to be really interesting in the future is to investigate that further and find out what the triggers and switches are for basophil control. Um, Surprisingly, little is known about these, these really interesting immune cells. What would they be doing normally in someone who didn't have an allergy? What are they for? Well, they're a sort of evolutionary hangover from when we used to be colonised with parasites. But we don't need them anymore, and it seems that they're becoming distracted with everyday, everyday proteins that we come across. And what do you think the biggest thing is that's changed about your life since you've done this trial? Um, I'm allowed much more stuff that says, so for example, with like food labelling, that say may contain traces of peanuts... So some more chocolate and stuff. That sounds good. So before you, you have to be really careful with what kinds of chocolate you ate. Yeah, we had to read every single label, absolutely everything. So is this something that's likely to work for other allergies, perhaps ones that are a bit less severe but affect a lot of us, like hay fever? Yes. In fact, there are licensed NHS products now for hay fever and uh, venom allergy. And it's also used in the NHS for treating house dust mite allergy and pet allergy. Is this something that, in a way, people might have sort of been doing by accident themselves? So I know some people find their hay fever's really bad at the beginning of a season, but by the end of it, it sort of seems like it's a bit more under control. Could that be related to this? Well, we certainly see that in cat allergy. So people who are allergic to cats and have hay fever symptoms when they're near their cats uh, get used to it over time. And then we see um, students, for example, lose tolerance to their cats when they leave home to go to university and then come back during holiday time and they get worse symptoms again. So don't neglect your pussycat, that's the bottom line. That was Andy Clark from Addenbrooke's Hospital, and before him, Lena and Diana Barden. They were speaking with Ginny Smith. And that work was published this week in the journal The Lancet. Later in the programme, we're going to be discussing the nano world, science on the very, very small. We have with us a gentleman who has been working out how to make particles that will unlock their contents only in certain cells based on a genetic signal. We'll also be hearing how you can make nanoparticle sensors and how you can use lasers to sort your nanoparticles. If you have a question on that science, get in touch now. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientist. Cat. Another story that I want to talk about this week is about our ancestors. As the success of family history TV programmes show, we seem to be endlessly fascinated with those that have come before us. But tracing your great-great-great-great-great-aunt Mildred is nothing compared to what scientists have done in a pair of papers published this week in the journal Science and Nature, looking at our Neanderthal ancestors and the genetic traces they've left in our genomes today. Now, modern humans, that's Homo sapiens, and Neanderthals split apart in Africa about half a million years ago. But while humans 
hadn't stayed in Africa, Neanderthals boldly went off to explore Europe and Asia. And when we finally left Africa less than 100,000 years ago, there's good evidence that these early adventurers interbred with the Neanderthals that were already living between Western Europe and Siberia. And comparing DNA from Neanderthal bones with the DNA of our own modern humans tells us that around 2% of the genomes of people descended from non-African populations is probably Neanderthal. And these genes are scattered across the genomes. Different people have different ones. And researchers have studied a few of these and found that we do have a little bit of Neanderthal in us, certainly. But in this new paper, two separate teams of researchers in the US have looked at much larger parts of our modern human genome that probably came from our Neanderthal cousins. And they died out about 30,000 years ago. And they were using computer analysis to pinpoint sequences in our modern DNA that looked like they should be much, much older, compared them with the Neanderthal genome to pick out the regions they came from. And it turns out that probably around a fifth of the Neanderthal genome has spread across the genomes of more than 600 living Europeans and East Asians that the scientists looked at, while the other team of scientists put together about 40% of the Neanderthal genome from DNA found in about 1,000 living people. This data shows that this interbreeding could have helped give our human ancestors very useful genes for helping us cope with the cold of northern Europe. But looking at some of the signatures of the genes in our DNA, it looks like maybe these Neanderthal human hybrids probably actually had some fertility problems and other health problems too. One intriguing one, it looks like our Neanderthal ancestors gave us smoking addiction and turns out some of our diseases, things like maybe risks of type 2 diabetes, depression and other immune-related diseases, may actually be related to some of these genes that we got from our Neanderthal cousins. So it's a sort of balance that the benefits of interbreeding with them and getting that ability to survive in harsher conditions outweighed some of the negative effects of getting these genes that have left us, unfortunately, more prone to certain diseases. Exactly. They had about 400,000 years of evolution in, in northern Europe to get good at living there. And so I think, you know, we've taken some of the best genes there. One of the most interesting ones is a gene called FOXP2, which is involved in speech and language, which is found in human DNA, but actually didn't seem to exist at all in the Neanderthals. So that tells you about something maybe about when we evolved the capacity for speech and language. Thank you, Kat. Well, let's look at the sea just to finish off our news this week. Michael Wilson from the University of Bonn has a paper in Nature this week and they've been looking at sponges. And in fact, people discovered a few years back that sponges are an amazing source of potential medicines. There are chemicals in sponges that could work as very powerful anti-cancer agents. They may also work as very powerful antibiotic drugs. But what was unclear is where these sponges get these chemicals from because you can look at the same species of sponge growing in one geographical area and it will make a very different profile of chemicals to almost the same sponge growing somewhere else which puzzled scientists for a while until this paper where they have proved that where the sponges get their chemistry from isn't the sponges themselves they have bacterial passengers and they actually have a kind of bacterium called an entotheonella paloensis which is this new strain of bacterium they've discovered living on these sponges and these bugs give the sponges their chemical know-how they produce a huge panoply of chemicals which the sponges then incorporate and use themselves and when they've looked at 37 different species of sponge they can find these bugs growing on them so it looks like these are bacterial passengers that grow on the sea sponge and the bacteria effectively give the sponge the chemistry that they need. 
Have they looked at whether any of these bacteria can be cultured in the lab? Because when chemists are out there looking for novel compounds in sponges, it's a huge job to farm vast numbers of sponges and then liquidise them to try and isolate milligrams of these exotic compounds. If they could be cultured, that would be a much quicker route to it, I would have thought. Yes, so one of the big criticisms, Mark, of using sponges as a source of medicines is that you would need half a tonne of sponges in order to treat one person. So if we can work out how they're making these chemicals, that would be the answer. These bugs were escaping attention for a long time because they're uncultivatable. But what they have now been able to do is to work out genetically how they make many of these molecules. So the idea is that we steal the genetic know-how and incorporate it into bacteria we do know how to grow, and that will then give us the ability to produce these drugs, but in a, a much more sustainable way that won't harm the ocean. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Kat Arney. On to our main topic for the week now, and that's how tiny structures called nanoparticles are set to revolutionise the fields of health, optics and electronics. At the Nanophotonics Centre at Cambridge University, a team of researchers are using this technology to develop new materials, including a polymer that changes colour as it stretches. Kate Lamble spoke to the head of the centre, Jeremy Baumberg. So nanophotonics is a way of trying to control light in a new way, and nano are sort of small things, and nanoscale is something on the scale of maybe tens of atoms, hundreds of atoms, it's a billionth of a metre, but it's also a way of trying to build things on that length scale so that we actually change the way that light interacts with matter. Most of the clothes that we're wearing, they're coloured, but the reason they're coloured is that they've got molecules in them, and when we shine light on them, some of the electrons in those molecules absorb particular colours of light, and we see the rest of the colours of light coming out. So the idea of nanophotonics is, can we design materials where they have this really intricate architecture on a really small scale, which is smaller than the wavelength of light, to change the colour of the material? So in nature, what animals or what plants do use colour in a different way from how we use it? So the classic examples are butterflies. So in nature, it's really difficult to make a good blue colour. And you can actually see that from blue M&Ms or Smarties, where they've actually tried to take out some of the artificial dyes and put in natural ones, and they're really poorly coloured. So butterflies solve this problem not by using a dye, but often by actually having really intricate wing scale structures. What they do is they scatter blue light very strongly, but absorb the other light. So only blue light comes off, and you have this wonderful iridescence. You can also see it in plants, and that's actually the cellulose in the plant walls, which is spiralling in a certain way, and that generates colour in the same way. And we're just about to start working on squid and clams. And they also have very strong iridescent colours, which they generate by layers of proteins in their cells. We were talking earlier about the colour of our clothes. I'm wearing this really bright pink jumper today. But that's all wool. I suppose when we're looking at the structure and imitating the structure of nature, we have to look at different materials Mm -hmm. rather than the ones that we're used to. So sometimes we actually do use the materials that, that's in nature. As I was talking about, cellulose is just you know, wood pulp. But often we're trying to use materials that we can control and produce very simply, so often polymer materials. So I have in front of me a piece of a material that we've been playing with for the last five years or so, and that's actually made of spheres of a polymer, which is polystyrene, so basically plastic bags. What happens here is if you take a sheet of this material, it's transparent, but if you chop it up finer and finer, it starts to get a colour. And what makes it really work is we make tiny spheres of this, less than the wavelength of light, and we've learnt how to make them so they stack up in regular arrays. And when they stack up, they make wonderful iridescent colours. So this piece here is a wonderful bright green. And the nice thing is, because it's made out of an elastic material, when I stretch it, it changes colour because I'm changing the separation of all the different components. 
this material is amazing. I mean, holding it just in your hand, it looks a bit like the back of a beetle, that iridescent shine that you get on the back of a beetle. But when you stretch it, it goes from a green to a definite blue. Why does that happen? So what happens here is that we have balls all sitting in regular sheets. Imagine you're taking marbles and putting them in a tray. We have a whole set of the balls like that and then another layer on top and another layer on top of that. The light bounces against these stacks of spheres. And when it bounces against each layer, there's a small amount of the light that's actually scattered in different directions. And when you add up all the waves from the light reflecting at different interfaces, only for some colours do they add up constructively do they add up to make a strong amount of light coming off and it's a bit like the um, phenomena of waves you can see waves bouncing around near the shore of a sea and then when the, the wave patterns come together you get these patterns of crests and troughs and that's happening with light here and what we have to do is we have to get the spacing of these layers exactly right and so what we can do is we can change the color of the material just by changing the size of the spheres so we can make red ones or blue ones or green ones just by starting with different sizes of spheres And how did you go about making these spheres and working with them on such a tiny level? This is in in some ways a really simple material, but until now it's been incredibly difficult to make, and it's actually an opal. So this stacking of spheres is what you find happens in the ground in Australia. It takes five million years, high pressure and special water to do it, and we don't have the time for that. So what we do is we actually grow these particles. You start by seeding them, and then you throw in some chemicals which are called monomers, and what you do is you grow a chemical reaction so they actually come and stick on the seeds. And you throw in more monomers, and they grow more and more and more, and each seed grows at the same rate, and you can stop at any point, and then you've got a whole load of spheres all the same size. So when you do that, and we make a sphere which is maybe a quarter of the wavelength of light across, a couple of hundred nanometers, and then we graft onto the edge of it, we add on a sticky layer, it's like chewing gum. So what we end up with is all of our spheres are coated with chewing gum, and then we dry everything out. And then what we can do is if we heat that up a bit, and we shear it, which is we actually put it between our hands, if you like, and move our hands in opposite directions, then these spheres have to move over each other. And it turns out when they have this chewing gum coating, as they move over each other, they start to like to form a really regular lattice. So it's a self-assembly process, and that's the secret of what we're trying to do. Instead of putting every sphere where we want it, we want all the spheres to want to go to the right place. How long has this sort of work been possible? How long has it been that we've been able to get down to the scale of nanometers and work on this level? So it's been evolving over the last 20 years or so. And what we've been learning steadily over that time are different little tools and techniques. And in that time, what's happened is we've, with these building blocks, we've learned how to grow much better. But actually how to glue them together, we're still only slowly learning. If it's only been around for 20 years and yet we've got so far in that considerably short period of time, in another 20 years, where do you think it will be? And sort of, do you think these type of nanophotonic materials will be in our everyday lives and we'll be taking them for granted? Completely so. I think the first place they'll come in is in, in the sort of areas of sensing and health. So we're starting to learn ways that we can make materials that might respond to the, the you know, thousands and thousands of components that are in our uh, immune systems. And so you get some sort of optical readout. We'll definitely see that within 10 years. I also think we'll start to see materials on buildings where you can change colours. There's a big demand for doing that. Certainly textiles, people are very interested in, in smart textiles. So all of this in the next 20 years, I think, will become very, very mainstream. Jeremy Bamberg from the Nanophotonics Centre at Cambridge University there, talking to Kate Lamble.
This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney. We're talking about nanoscience, the science of the very small this week, and in a second we'll learn about how you can make tiny particles that can address themselves uniquely to certain cells in your body and hopefully discharge a cargo exclusively in those cells. We'll also hear later how you can use tiny particles like these to make sensors and then also maybe sort out tiny particles using a laser beam as a pair of tweezers. How does it work? If you have any questions for us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. So Jeremy predicted that nanophotonics will become mainstream in medicine within the next decade or so. Perhaps one of the applications will be a system being developed by Nottingham University's Cameron Alexander to deliver and activate nanoparticles in specific cells and tissues. He's with us to explain how. First of all, Cameron, what actually is a nanoparticle? Well, nanoparticles essentially are any particles that fit in a size range less than a micron. So that's something we can have a a thousand microns in a millimetre. But it's also important to remember that nanoparticles are actually bigger than atoms. So whilst they're very small, they're actually rather bigger than atoms. But they can be anything essentially on that size range. And what are you trying to do with them? What's the problem you're trying to solve? So what we're we're trying to do with our nanoparticles, we've devised a system where we put together nanoparticles with long-chain molecules called polymers, similar to the ones that Jeremy talked about. But we attach those to strings of DNA or nucleic acids, which have a, a sequence of bases and letters so that they encode for a particular sequence. And what we do, the, the idea is that we can then use that code to recognise a target molecule inside a cell. And the idea behind that is that that target molecule, which could be something related to a disease, a gene a signal from a disease, could then open up a nanoparticle and release either a cargo, which could be a therapeutic drug molecule, or a signal, which might be an optical readout or some other response. So you can then use this as a combined sensor and diagnostic, but also perhaps a therapeutic at the same time. So we have these tiny particles, they have a cargo in the centre, and wrapped around them is some DNA. And you're not using the DNA as a genetic material, but you're using the DNA because it has a specific structure and a sequence, almost like an address, and it can sense if there's another piece of genetic material in the cell the particle goes into, and if the two recognise each other this makes the particle do something. That's right, yes. Where we're using the DNA as a, as a code, if you like a barcode, such that one can have a very specific signal which addresses that particular code. And what we do at the moment, we haven't actually put drugs in the core of these things, but we've stuck the DNA with cholesterol at one end, so an oily molecule, and that causes these long chains to associate together. So there's an oily water-hating core, and then the DNA strands stick out from that and on top of that we put a covering layer which hides one of the signals and only when the specific target molecule either in the cell or in the test tube as we've shown when that comes in and binds to the other bits of dna this opens up the surface of this nanoparticle revealing a signal or a hook in our case which you can then have a readout but of course one could do that to release a specific drug molecule in an exact place in a cell. So what sorts of signals are they responding to? How is that unlocking process happening and how could you make it specific for a certain type of cell or a certain type of disease? Well there's a number of ways uh, you can do this what you can do is you can have like a, a little hook on these nanoparticles which is exposed to bind to a specific cell. So particular cells 
cells and cancer cells are very obvious examples. Sometimes what they do is they produce molecules on their surface and there are more of those molecules. Sometimes there are particular what's known as receptors which bind to particular components on these nanoparticles. And those receptors are sometimes more prevalent in cancer cells. They're a signal of the cancer cell. And so, of course, we could put those markers on nanoparticles to trigger their entry into a cancer cell to deliver a drug specifically to a cancer cell rather than a normal cell. Can they be safely injected into the bloodstream anyway, these particles? We've not done that with these particular particles, but there are plenty of other examples of similar base systems where they have been injected safely and they circulate for a long time. So there's no reason to suspect that these would be in any way detrimental. And if they're not wanted in a cell, then what happens if they don't open up? If they don't open up, uh, these things would be passive and harmless and they can be excreted. So, of course, what one can do is make them out of natural components which degrade over time anyway, so they're filtered out by the kidneys. So there are ways in which you can build them from components which will degrade naturally over time. So you have plenty of flexibility, and this is the advantage of using these polymer molecules, is that you can have flexibility in the design to make them respond to the signal that you want to degrade over the time that you want. And is it likely you could package pretty much anything inside your nanoparticle, or are there certain things which you just can't put in there? In principle, you could package pretty well anything based on the, the kinds of chemistries. But of course, as we go back to the concept of nanoparticle size, I think that's something that it's important to remember, because whilst these things are bigger than drug molecules, so you could put conventional drug molecules in, you couldn't, for instance, put in a huge number of drug molecules, there's only a certain amount of space in the core of these systems. And of course, if you want a cancer therapeutic, you want a very potent drug in the inside. And of course, there are other things which are simply too big to fit in. And if you could address them to specific tissues, apart from just labelling up the tissue to tell doctors or scientists, look, this particle's homed in on this part of the body, I presume that means you could direct a drug just to that place, which spares the rest of the body being exposed to it, which exactly. would reduce that's, side effects. That's one of the key things, obviously, in, in cancer therapies, but in other therapies as well, where you want to take your drug molecule to the very specific target either the cell itself or something inside a cell, a specific location, and therefore not expose the rest of the body to this. So that's a very, very key thing in, in cancer therapy, but in other diseases too. And the killer T question, time, how long do you think? Because I think people often find it difficult to understand research timescales. You're at the stage where you're doing this in a test tube. How long do you think it'll be before you've got something you could be putting into a patient? I think realistically, the kind of things where you develop the materials, you're looking at the kind of five-year timescale, whether you established safety, whether you've actually got something which is fully efficacious, it may take a little bit longer. But so I'm obviously hedging my bets on the answer because these things can always take time. But I think the chemistries are there to make these materials. The question is cost. And of course, if something else comes along in the time, which is better than what we've got at the moment. Cat. I just had a really, really quick question for Cameron. Um, is that I've heard that cancer cells tend to really like taking up nanoparticles. Is, is that true and do we know why? Yeah, there are some cases that, that uh, nanoparticles can uh, target cancer cells. I mean, essentially, uh, cancer tissue is slightly more disrupted than normal tissue. So uh, slightly uh, bigger things like nanoparticles can actually go into the gaps between the cells and they're not pumped out quite so quickly. So that's why they can potentially target uh, cancer cells in, in general. Because there's lots of excitement about kind of nanoparticle therapies for cancer and it does seem an, uh, quite a useful property that they, they do like them. Yes, indeed. And, and again, of course, they can carry lots of different drug payloads so you can have combination therapies at the same time. So there's quite a lot of potential there. Cameron, thank you very much. Cameron Alexander, he's from the University of Nottingham. 
You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Kat Arney. So far, we've heard about synthetic nanoparticles made from polymers, but one of the other primary techniques in the field is to harness the peculiar properties of gold. Matthew Milliard from the University of Cambridge uses gold nanoparticles in his work on sensors, and he joins us now. Hi, Matt. Hello, Kat. So tell me a bit about gold nanoparticles. They have quite a a rich and, to be honest, colourful history. Yes, so gold nanoparticles have been used in stained glass, for example, for almost 2,000 years. They're actually first used by the Romans. There's a rather fantastic example in the British Museum called the Lycurgus Cup, which looks differently depending on whether you look at light that's reflected on it or light that's transmitted through it. And this is because it contains various different gold and silver nanoparticles that absorb and react with light in different ways. So tell me about these gold nanoparticles. Um, What sort of sizes are we talking about and what are some of the peculiar properties of them? So these gold nanoparticles sit around anywhere between, say, 20 nanometers and a couple of hundred nanometers. And they are so small that they trap the electrons that usually transport electricity in a bulk gold. And so when you shine a light onto a nanoparticle, these electrons are moved from side to side of the nanoparticle. And this means that each side of the nanoparticle becomes charged. Because of this, the nanoparticle isn't too dissimilar to a magnet. And so if you bring two nanoparticles close together, there is an enhancement of the electric field between them. If you hold two magnets together, you can feel this attractive force. That's because the magnetic field is uh, attracted between the two different charges on each side of the magnet. It's similar with a nanoparticle. And this can be used as a kind of magnifying lens for light. So light gets focused into this gap and it allows us to see what's inside it. So presumably then this is where the sensors bit comes in because if you've got two nanoparticles, you've got a gap in between that you can see through, you can then detect something else that gets in there. Precisely. So the idea is that if you uh, shine light onto nanoparticles, they'll give off a certain colour. But if you put something into the gap, that will change the colour that you see. And so as a sensor, you can have a look at changes in colour that will result in telling you what is exactly inside your gap. So you need to know kind of precisely what effect on the colour this particular chemical has and then you can say, right, this is a sensor that detects X molecule. Yeah, precisely. So it's a very, very slight change that you see in this change of the light that you see. So you have to have very, very sensitive detectors in order to be able to see what exactly you have in there. But this is a signature of whatever molecule you have in there. So, for example, benzene ring, which is a ring of six carbon atoms, gives off a very distinct signature to any other kind of atom. What kind of things could you detect with these kind of sensors and what sort of sensitivity are we talking about? I mean, there are already some sensors out there that are quite efficient and can go down to quite low levels. Would these be significantly better? Well, potentially, and people have actually achieved single molecular detection with this kind of sensors. So you'd be looking at just one molecule inside a gap between two nanoparticles, and you'd be able to know what it is. But practically, what you can do with this is, say, looking for contaminants in food. So there's a research group in Singapore who have recently been looking at rather nasty molecules that can cause all kinds of birth defects in children in orange juice and milk. And if they put a piece of contaminated milk onto a sensor made up of these gold nanostructures, you can get a detection level 
significantly better than what food and drug administrations would say is a safe level. So it becomes a fantastically sensitive way of seeing how many molecules and potentially how many harmful molecules are actually in a solution. It does sound really exciting, but is it not very expensive? I mean, you go to your funders and say, oh, yeah, we need to buy loads of gold. Sorry. <laughs> so so when, you, when you're making these sensors, you're talking about gold nanoparticles. They're so minute that you're only using really, really tiny tiny amounts. You're looking less than gold dust in a 20 milliliter solution of gold nanoparticles. So really don't have to worry about expense of the gold. It's more the expense of the manufacturing process. And where do you want the future of this kind of technology to go? Where do you think, briefly, the most exciting things are? So the most exciting thing would be because you're only detecting the light that you're given off by these sensors, you could potentially use these within even mobile phone cameras you know if you had a sensor in front of a camera you could hold it up to the sun after breathing on it say and being able to tell if there was anything funny in what you're breathing out so any viruses or anything like that that's probably a bit fantastical but really because you're only sensing using light as opposed to anything else you can get to see some really exciting ideas and applications it does certainly sound very exciting to me thanks very much matt that's matthew milliard from the university of cambridge but uh, can those food sensors pick up horse meat, Matthew? That's the key um, question, isn't I think, it? I think horse meat's a bit big, really. <laughs> so far, we've uh, heard about early plans to make and use nanoparticles and structures, but Richard Bowman from the University of Cambridge is looking way into the future. Uh, he's actually looking at how we can sort these particles out using laser beams. Hello, Richard. Hello. So why would we want to sort nanoparticles out in the first place? What's the um, problem? Well, there's sort of two main reasons you might want to do it. One is uh, when you're making the nanoparticles, often you want to make a particular shape or size. But what the chemical synthesis produces is a spread of sizes and different shapes. So if you could sieve them out, sieve out the ones you want, that would be really useful. The other thing is, as Matt was saying, if you're using these as sensors, sometimes you want to sort nanoparticles that have attached to something from the ones that haven't. And again, you could use this to sieve out the particles you're interested in for more detailed analysis. And that's tricky to do at the moment, is it? Yes, it's quite hard. Particularly, there, there are techniques where you can flow particles through and sort them into one bin or the other. But you have to look at every particle as it passes through. And you have to do the detection very, very fast. And it works on sort of droplets, which would correspond to hundreds or thousands of nanoparticles. And of course, we want to use you know, millions. Yes, but we want to sort them individually. So both uh, dealing with fewer at once and dealing with many, many more at once. Most people won't really grasp that you can actually use light, though, in the form of lasers to push things around. So how does your technique work? Yes, it uses the momentum carried by a beam of light. If I shine a laser pointer at you, it is actually pushing you backwards. There's energy flowing through the laser beam at high speed, and that corresponds to a little bit of momentum. But to give you a feel for the force, if I shine even quite a powerful laser at you, the force that exerts is less than the weight of a grain of salt on a tabletop by a factor of about a thousand. So very, very tiny force, but I presume with a very, very tiny particle, you don't need very much force to start nudging them along. No, indeed. You can use a laser to push a particle, well, what on those length scales is quite fast. So how will your technique work? Talk us through what you're trying to do and how you're doing this. Well, I should start by maybe mentioning a bit more about how the light interacts with a nanoparticle. Matt said it pushes the electrons around in the nanoparticle. But a nanoparticle, you can think of the electrons in a nanoparticle as the tea in your cup of tea. 
If you shake your cup of tea, it sloshes from side to side. But the size of your teacup will affect the way it sloshes. A bigger teacup will have tea that sloshes more slowly. Especially the cups of tea I drink, yeah. <laughs> yes. And so the, the rate at which the electrons slosh from side to side in the nanoparticle corresponds to the colour of the light. So if we have... Because different coloured lights are different wavelengths. They have troughs and peaks which are different distances apart. Is that what you're getting at? Yes, exactly. And that corresponds to a different frequency. And so if you have nanoparticles which resonate at different frequencies, what you find is that one colour of light will push one of those nanoparticles more than the other. So by using different coloured lights, you can nudge one size of nanoparticle in one direction and perhaps another size in another direction or not influence it. And in this way, you can achieve a sort of sorting. Exactly. Does it work? Um, it has <laughs> been shown... Um, in the last couple of years, there have been a couple of papers where people have demonstrated that you get motion of nanoparticles of different sizes. What I'd really like to do is scale this up to many more nanoparticles at the same time, and then also actually collect these nanoparticles. Uh, so working in a microfluidic device. So for instance, if you wanted to use nanoparticles like Cameron was describing medically, and you wanted a very, very tight specification for the particle, you could feed it through your system and it would literally be chucking one scale in one direction, one size particle or the rejects in another direction. Mm. A bit like the sort of nuts going along the conveyor belt and they get blown off by a puff of air if they're a pistachio that hasn't opened, for example. Yes, that's what we'd like to get to. How far away? Mm. I, I presume I think it's not it's... working, but the fact that I, I, that's where I'd like to be, I presume you've you're still got a little way to go. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen sorting of uh, different sizes of nanoparticles, but scaling it up will take a while. I mean, I wouldn't expect this to be used in products you can buy for at least 10 years or so. But in terms of using it for research in the lab, well, hopefully that'll be the next few years. But again, it, it, this is giving people an insight into the sorts of timescales that researchers work to, where we don't have a light bulb moment and suddenly the problem is solved. This is a series of very, very painstaking experiments done in tiny increments of, of discovery over long periods of time. Yes, there's, uh, there's lots of things to tweak and optimise before we find the right conditions. Well, we'll be tweaking a little bit more in a second. Thank you, Richard. Richard Bowman from University of Cambridge, because Richard's brought along some gadgets, which he's going to have a play with. He's got some laser beams. He's going to zap some things in the studio for us. You're listening to The Naked Scientist. This week, we're discussing the science of the very small, nanoscience. Our guests this week, Cameron Alexander from the University of Nottingham, Matthew Milliard from Cambridge University's Cavendish Laboratory, and also Richard Bowman, who is also from Cambridge University. If you'd like to get in touch with the programme, the email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can tweet at Naked Scientists. We also have a Facebook page and you can find out what we're up to there. It's facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Richard's brought some gadgetry along with him. So you've got a little experiment for us here in the studio, Richard. What have you brought in? Matt mentioned earlier the uh, Lycurgus cup, which is a very beautiful piece of stained glass which looks green when you shine light onto it from the front and red when you shine light through it. Now, given that we have various pots of gold nanoparticles in our lab, I've always been curious why I've never noticed this. So I thought I would try and recreate the Lycurgus cup. So you have stolen some laboratory <laughs> nanoparticles for us. Can we see them? What do they look like? Yes, have a look. OK. So um, this little pot here contains a small amount of kind of red liquid. It could well be cranberry juice, although I wouldn't drink it. <laughs> 
No, it's, so it is a, a pinky liquid and it is slightly what we'd call turbid, as in slightly cloudy, but only just slightly. I can, if yes. I look at a screen behind it, I can see the picture on the TV screen behind it, for yeah. example. So there's, there's lots of tiny gold nanoparticles in there. How big are the particles? Uh, so the particles in here are about 50 nanometers in size. Okay. So a thousandth of the width of a human hair. And what are we going to do with them? Okay, so if I shine a torch through them, you'll see that the the torch beam looks kind of pinky. Yeah, so uh, it just looks like you're shining a light and the solution does not look any different. It's the same pink yeah. colour I was looking at just now when I held it. Exactly. The difference is, when I shine the torch through from the front... So you're now, you s- you've now turned it round so that I'm looking along the beam of the torch with it going away from me. So rather than seeing the light coming through the solution, I'm now looking along the torch and seeing it hitting the front of the, the bottle. Exactly. And so hopefully what you can see is a kind of greeny-yellow tint. It's a totally different colour. The light that's coming back towards me, what's reflecting off the front of the bottle, is greeny-yellow. And I presume if I went round the back and had a look, I would just see pink light again. Exactly. Why the difference? So this is the way that the colour is formed. When I shine the light through, uh, what you see is the light that isn't absorbed by the particles. Ah, so that's the transmitted light, so it just looks pink. exactly. Right, Okay. And when I shine the light on the front, what you see is the light that these particles scatter. Uh, As I was saying before, the resonance effect, this sloshing cup of tea, for these particles, 50, 60 nanometer gold particles, that corresponds to green light. So it scatters the green light very strongly, which is what you see when I shine the torch from the front. When I shine it from the back, because that is the light that's scattered and absorbed, the red light gets through. Well, thank you all very much. And thank you to our guests, Cameron Alexander, Matthew Milliard, and also Richard Bowman, who are with us this week. Now it's time to catch up with Hannah Critchlow, because it's time for Question of the Week, and a rather sweaty one at that. This week, we sniff out the answer to this. Hi, I'm Jonathan Michael from the Philippines. Uh, I'd like to ask, what causes deodorant stains on clothes? I mean, me and my friend are using the same kind of deodorant, but he never have those ugly yellow stains, whereas I have those, especially my white clothes. I would like to ask if it is something that my body only produces while he doesn't, or it is because I'm sweating like a pig. So are Jonathan's pig tendencies to blame for his deodorant stains? With the answer is Susan Taylor from Iowa State University. You know, I was doing laundry for my sister they were visiting, and I noticed the uh, yellow armpits of the T-shirts of my brother-in-law. And so I, I kind of asked her, I said, don't you know how to take care of that? And and she kind of said, well, we've tried, but my brother-in-law tends to lather the deodorant on because he thinks he's going to have a stressful day or whatever. Our deodorants have antiperspirant ingredients like aluminum, and they react with the salts in the sweat, and that's caused the yellowing in the white fabric. So regular detergents that we use won't always do much for the armpit stains. There's a, a couple things that you can use to tackle the stain. One of the bigger ones is not to put so much deodorant on and let it dry a little bit so that it doesn't transfer right onto your clothing. And if you can't limit the amount of deodorant you use or wait for it to dry before you put your clothes on, then how best to get rid of those aluminium deposits that are reacting with the sweat salts to produce those unsightly stains? Scrape off any excess material that you may have in that area of the T-shirt. Soak for 15 minutes in a mixture of one quart lukewarm water and one half teaspoon liquid hand dishwashing detergent and one tablespoon of ammonia. Gently rub 
from back to loosen up the stain. Soak another 15 minutes in the above mixture and rinse. Soak a protein stain in an enzyme product for at least 30 minutes and then launder. If the stain remains, launder using chlorine bleach if it's safe for the fabric. And if it's a t-shirt that's of color, use oxygen bleach at that time. Thanks, Susan and Jonathan. Well, from sweat to snot, with post-Christmas sniffles sticking around, what do you think about this? Hi, Naked Scientists. My name's Sarah and I live in Tasmania, Australia. I'd like to know, is it true that if you have a chest or a head cold and the mucus turns yellow or green, this is a sign of a bacterial infection and requires antibiotics? Thank you. So, can you detect the stage and severity of your cold by the colour? of your snot. What do you think? That's it for this week. Thank you very much to all of our guests, Matthew Milliard, Cameron Alexander, Richard Bowman and Jeremy Baumberg. Thank you also to Kat Arney for joining me and the production was by Kate Lamble. Next time we'll be finding out what food footprint you leave behind you when you go for your weekly shop, including hearing from some of the panellists at the Food for a Greener Future conference, which is being held next week in Cambridge. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.